Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, where each episode we bring you a brand new interview with one of the film industry's top directors, conducted by one of their peers. Remember to subscribe to our podcast on Google Play Music, iTunes, Stitcher, or on our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash thedirectorscut. And if you're enjoying The Director's Cut, please take a moment to like, share, or comment. We love hearing your feedback. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director John Ridley's new documentary, Let It Fall, Los Angeles, 1982-1992. In a re-examination of the 1992 Los Angeles Rebellion, the film traces the roots of the uprising back to a decade before the first match was lit. Weaving in first-hand accounts from Los Angeles residents of all ethnic backgrounds and classes, the film covers the explosion of anger and fear in the streets in the aftermath of the Rodney King verdict from the perspectives of the witnesses. Let It Fall, Los Angeles 1982-1992, was screened as part of the DGA's documentary series, which aims to spotlight groundbreaking nonfiction films for DGA members and guests by presenting screenings of documentaries as well as conversations with their directors. In addition to Let It Fall, Mr. Ridley's filmography includes the feature films Jimmy, All Is By My Side, and Cold Around the Heart, episodes of the miniseries Guerrilla, and episodes of the television series American Crime, Presence, Barbershop, and Platinum. After the documentary series screening of the film at the DGA Theater in New York, Mr. Ridley spoke with director Sam Pollard about making Let It Fall. During their conversation, Mr. Ridley discusses the challenge of telling a story that's both timely and timeless, the difficulty of getting the trust of the people who were involved in the riots, and why he felt it was necessary to tell the story as a documentary instead of a fictionalized version of the events. Hello. I don't have to give you all John's credits, you're aware of his credits. So we're just gonna jump right into it. John, I saw the film over the weekend. Very powerful, very complicated. Tell us how it all came about. Uh, first of all, thank you for coming out this evening. I, I appreciate it. Um, the story really came about, I think it was about 12 years ago, Spike Lee, who I've had the opportunity to work with and, and know and obviously be inspired by over the years, um, called and said, hey, I wanna do a a film about the LA uprising, do you want to write it? And <laughs> I'm like, yeah, of course I would. I'd moved out to Los Angeles from, uh, actually from a small town in the Midwest, and I'd moved to New York, and actually went finished my last couple of years of school at NYU, and then lived out here through the early 90s. And um, was excited to come out to New York, but when I got here, it was New York, uh, I was just saying downstairs, you know, Bernie Getz and Howard's Beach and Crown Heights, and you know, coming from a small town in Wisconsin, I was not, um, I, I thought coming to New York would be the first time where sort of you know, race didn't matter as much. Um, your background didn't matter as much, and it, it, it turned out it did. So I moved out to LA in about 1990, and I thought, you know, like much as in the documentary, is going to be the LA of 1984, and we are the world, and things like that, and it wasn't. So when Spike called me, and um, this was in would have been around 2000, much later, but around 2005, 2006, thought there was an opportunity to explore that event, you know, the uprising itself, 
or the part that we think of as being the riot. But in that time, and starting to do research, starting to meet with people in various communities, starting to see that the issues, that the concerns, as always in life, are more broad-based, more pervasive, um, have more depth and reach than we often see once it, we become aware of them, I just felt like there was a whole, there was more to this story to be told. And over the years, um, with Spike and uh, Imagine was producing, it was Brian Grazier and Ron Howard, um, you know, we, we, we formed this narrative that we hoped that we could tell in a, in a narrative feature. But all of the things that we thought were very impactful about this film, that there aren't um, obvious heroes, there aren't obvious villains, that it takes place over time, that it really is about different perspectives, uh, made it very difficult to, hear, to tell as a narrative film. So for about 10 years, I had an opportunity to familiarize myself with these stories, but it was not something that lended itself to um, traditional studio films. And I got that, you know, I was, had the opportunity to work in that space and I just, you know, people were excited about the kind of story, but it was just the barrier of entry tended to be kind of high. So eventually, you know, I'm, I'm working, I had been working at ABC doing American Crime and uh, some stories over there and they all liked the things that I was doing, and I got a call from some folks at Lincoln Square Productions, which is a division of ABC News, and they knew that the anniversary was approaching. They wanted to do a documentary. They didn't know I had been working on uh, a narrative like this, mm -hmm. and so they said, hey, do you want to do a documentary? I said, well, I've never done one before. You guys know what you're doing in terms of documentary, but there's a story that I want to tell. There are things that I want to share. There, um, people who I want to make sure that we represent, and they were like, hey, if you want to do it, if you want to tell it in that way, and this was the first time after 10 years that people were saying, let's do that. You know, let's make sure we try to represent. Let's make sure that we try to be reflective um, and do it in a verbatim way. And that excited me. And with these folks, um, their capacities to go out and find these individuals, because at this point, 25 years later, not everybody is living in Los Angeles. Not everybody wants to talk about it. Some people that we finally interviewed, they, they sincerely were, I'm ready to take this to my grave. I think you can see the emotion. I think you can see the rawness that people still treat these stories with 25 years later. So it was really about these producers going out in these neighborhoods, sitting with folks, not just saying, hey, we, we want your little bit of narrative, and that's all we want to hear from you. Um, they really made the effort to, to bring these people into a fold. Well, that's what makes it special. When I watch it, it's such a multi-level through all the different characters. For example, the, the, the watch commander yeah. who told pulled his police out of Normandy and Florence, yeah. he's powerful. I, I'm surprised he came on camera and talked to you. That was Mike Moulin, and yeah. he was one individual I knew that I wanted to try to sit down and have him tell this story. And to this day, when he tells it, you know, he doesn't say it out of fear, he says it, you know, I could not risk our folks going in there anymore. I could not risk that. And yet you have Lisa Phillips, the other officer. The gay police officer. You know, the officer who ends up coming out to her partner on that day who says, I couldn't live with myself if we didn't push into that neighborhood. But all of these stories, you know, that, again, I started as a novelist, and my desire and my approach with this story was to treat it almost like a novel where you have a few moments in film, but a few pages in a novel where you don't know everything. It's not all revealed to you. You have folks talking about their family, their history, their past, where they came from, their grandparents. You have Damian Williams, you know, and his, um, you just hear this disembodied voice for so long until we find out who he is. But again, it, it was 
working in a space where people were going to allow us to try to tell a story that has an emotional impact, but unfolds in a way that it embraces certain elements of storytelling. But you know, it's also interesting too, some of these characters you, you feel very sympathetic toward, and some you are a little repulsed by. So for example, the gentleman who had the video camera when Reginald Denny was being beaten up, my part of me said, well, why didn't he put that video camera down and help him like the other guy did? Yeah. You know, and then the, one of the gentlemen who, who beat up Reginald Denny says, when he tells you that story about he, he was looking in his wallet yeah. to see if he, I said, okay. <laughs> but that's what makes it so fascinating. You get all these multi-levels of perspectives, you know. It really is to me about these perspectives, as you say, and that these individuals, even 25 years later, how they see, they're all looking at the same event, but they're looking at it from different spaces. Some are at the heart of it, some are slightly removed. Um, somehow they're passing the story off. You know, we go from Marjean Banks at the very um, early stages, talking about James Mincy Jr., her boyfriend being killed, um, and then she kind of steps away. And we have other individuals who arrive sort of in the middle spaces. Uh, and then their engagement drops off. But that's sort of the way society is. You know, we're having a moment right now. We're all together. We're all engaged in this space. Um, and then we move away. How, how I may feel about you, how you may feel about me right now. Oh, he seems like a pleasant guy talking about his film. But what the things that you may find out later, how we view people in that remove. Um, again, we see it every single day this inability to see ourselves in other people. And for us, and I'll say this for me, I won't say this for other people, you know, I have the luxury to be able to try to engage and try to tell stories, but what, what, what do I do with it? What do we do with it? Because I think there are other people who don't have that luxury, not necessarily out of ignorance or circumstance, but the way that we're set up. You know, there, there, there are things in Los Angeles that only would work the way they work if people, and I don't want to politicize too much, but people at the top are able to um, create certain narratives. So you get police officers who, the thing that was really powerful to me, and we didn't have an opportunity, we, we, we reached out to some of the officers who were involved in the, the, the assault on Rodney King, and they chose not to speak to us. But there's one officer who's talking about, you know, I, I knew he was on PCP, and I knew he was on PCP. Well, I've never actually arrested anyone on PCP before. How did he know? But, and he'll say that, but, but I, I, right. I, I felt that. These circumstances are set up, and then the rest of us have to deal with them, and that's unfortunate. We see it over and over again. You know, I kept expecting to see one of those officers come up in the film from the Rodney King beating. I kept saying, oh, I know one of them is going to come on camera, but then you had some old footage. Yeah, yeah. We, we wanted to have, as best we can, the opportunity for these officers to express themselves. Really, our, our desire here was not to exonerate anyone. It was not to indict anyone. You know, as you say, you have people that you, you feel conflicted about. There may be other people in a different metric. There's somebody else they feel conflicted about. That's not bad or wrong. People no. are complicated. But it's like, what's the, the, who's the lady who says her son got arrested? She says, if I was there, yes. this wouldn't have happened. George and I Young say, Williams. what? Are you kidding? <laughs> well, that is, it was very interesting to us because there are, you know, as, as a person in general, but a mother in particular, that belief that you have this power, and I, I don't want to say an incorrect belief, but that you could have gone out in this corner, you could have made a difference, but also that, that difficulty that she was not there. You know, you get to a circumstance where there are no authority figures in any way, shape, or form. It really is these very young individuals who feel like they've been disrespected, they've been disrespected. It's not even about Rodney King at this point. We're just trying to go out up the street and express ourselves 
And when these officers come in, and again, I think a lot of individuals are not aware, they think it was, you know, 25 years later, Rodney King got beat up and a bunch of folks went out on the streets and paid back uh, their feelings to Reginald Denny. But it was a cascade effect. And even at that moment, it was about this other young man and how he was being arrested and people saying, okay, well, now we're done. Now we're done. What was also fascinating to me too is how you really explored what's happening in the Asian community and the young man who was killed by bullets shot from people in the Asian community and his sister and his mother. I thought that was very powerful and very emotional. You know, When you spoke with the mother and the sister, did they, were they open to just talking about this stuff? Well, they, they, they came to speak with us and they came after our producers went to a great deal of effort of, of embracing communities to begin right. with. But when they arrive, for, for the most part, once someone chooses to show up, you, you know you have the opportunity to engage in some way, shape, or form. But again, we didn't try to make the conversation about, okay, well, you've, you've lost your son, just tell us about that. Tell us about where you came from. You know, Mrs. Lee, Edward Lee was the young man who was killed. Um, we started the conversation about what was it like when you're moving from Korea? What was yeah. that like? And really with the intention of using those stories in the film. So I think once people understood that we really wanted to talk about family, about circumstances, about their hopes, their dreams, their desires, and once they knew that we were going to give their story equal weight among stories from other communities, they were much more forthcoming. Um, they were much more willing to share their stories. And for us in this group of, of storytellers, when we had our premiere at the uh, California African American Museum, and we had all of these folks from different communities. I mean, look, just as a, as a filmmaker, you never know how it's gonna be received at all. Doesn't matter what story you're telling. Um, on an opening night, you don't know how people are gonna react. On an opening night, when you have people from various communities who have no reason to trust you explicitly, or in general, other folks that you've um, uh, matrixed their stories with, um, to see those reactions, for people to realize that their shared story, it's unique, because of their what they've been through and their loss, but that it really is being treated as though this is about communities. That was probably, and I've been blessed, I've been blessed particularly over these last few years. I've never had a feeling like that feeling on the night that we pre premiered this film. So how many of the subjects came to that screening that night? Um, we had, uh, the Lees were there, several of the police officers, which we were very, you know, look, the police, have every reason to go, okay, well, you're a black man telling the story. We have no reason to think that you're going to tell it. But the Williams um, uh, were there. Um, Marjean Banks was there. We had a, a really strong representative of, of individuals, and that made us feel good, that they felt like they could share this story with us in public and not, be, not, not feel as though they're being marginalized. So coming from a fictional background, working on films like 12 Years a Slave and the Jimi Hendrix film, what was it like for you to be in the editing room putting this film together? How long did it take? Well, we had, I will say this, um, a, a really strong group of individuals who were helping put this film together on a constant cycle because we were taking archival footage and working with ABC, we had almost literally years worth of years worth of footage. We had the new interviews that we were doing, and then we had these other experiential pieces, the B-roll and things that we were trying to put together. So there was a time, and we had a young uh, editor, uh, Colin Rich, who was working on it. We had our producers, um, 
Aaliyah and Fatima and Jean Marie who were working on it. Um, there was almost, and we were in LA, we were in New York, and I was also in London at that time. So there was a moment we were working truly, truly in person hours, 24 hours a day to put this film together. And when we started, let me just say this, when we started originally, when we were approached, ABC approached us about doing one hour on television, which would have been 42 minutes. That's right. And we came back and we said, you know, with respect, this is not a, this is not a 42 minute story. And they came back and they said, okay, well, we think we can swing 40, 84 minutes on TV. And 84 minutes of real estate anywhere in the modern world is, it's precious, it really is. But we came back and we said, look, I, again, we just don't think to do this story, we, we can come in with the limitation. We need to find out what, what's the appropriate amount and may we deliver that to you. And to their credit, they said, go do the story that you feel is appropriate. And what we felt was appropriate was what you're seeing or what you saw this evening. And ABC, to their credit, said, okay, we will allow you to put that in the world. We do want to air a version of this on TV because we, we've supported it. And we did. There was a version that aired. But you know, th this version that is now coming back out and is being screened and is in theaters is a result of so many folks working so very hard to tell a story that is, you know, unfortunately timely and timeless. You know, it was also amazing to me to see some of this footage. You know, I've seen a lot of this material, but there's some stuff I had never seen, like the whole, you know, understanding the, the issue, the use of the chokehold, yeah. and how the, you, the rookie policemen learn how to use it. You know, I thought that was very effective. You know, and I thought that the whole thing about the metal baton, that was like new information to me. You know, I didn't know any of that information. So, Well, that's what we wanted to do is really go back 10 years and try to, I mean, look, you could go back 15, 25, 35 years. You could go back many, many years. But it, to us, the context of the end of what one could call the chokehold era in terms of how the LAPD used that method to sub subdue suspects and kill people, frankly, with the introduction of the metal baton, with the you know the the Olympics, which was sort of the height of LA and how we remembered it, to the crack cocaine era, to the Karen Tashima shooting, to really sort of identify very particular moments and beats, so that there were things that yes, people may have seen or be slightly familiar with, but what are the underpinnings? What are these things that really change these courses? And as the title implies, let it fall, let the city fall apart. So now that you've uh dabbed your foot into the toe into the world of documentary. Are you excited to do another one, John? I, it, the, there is obviously uh, a factual integrity that goes into telling a story like this, that as much as I love uh, American crime, and even 12 Years a Slave, which was based on someone's memoir, there's latitude in there, there's latitude. Um, the folks that we were working with at Lincoln Square and ABC, um, there's no latitude with their dedication to getting the facts straight. And we're in an era right now where the continual lack of respect for news, for people going out and at least trying to bring you the story and at least giving you a space where you can go, okay, well, here's how it plays here, here's how it plays there, let me form my own opinion. Um, you know, it's degrading. So it, it's, it, it is degrading to those individuals, it's degrading in terms of how an actual degradation of our respect for it. So in answer to your question, if I had the opportunity to work with people who can help me keep it straight, um, if I can find a story where I feel like, as you say, um, bringing out facts that people aren't aware of and 
perspectives that aren't normally told, I think, in the communal space, not enough in my opinion. Yeah, I would do another one in a heartbeat. Yeah, I, you know, there's been, as you know, as we all know, there's been a plethora of films about 92 now. And when I watched this one the other night, I said, wow, man, this one may go to the top of the food chain. You know, really go to the top of the food chain. The story about Karen and what happened in Westwood was also very powerful. You know, when I watched that story, I was like amazed at what happened to her and what was going on in those streets. And because I spent some time in Westwood when I was cutting some films out there in the 80s and the 90s. So there was always elements in the story that kept surprising me. It kept me surprised. You know. It was uh, I, the Karen Tashima, the tragedy there, it was one that I was aware of, but I think also it does just in its representation go to the fact that it, when we talk about LA and we talk about LA in 92 or where we arrived to, you know, we still think of race very much as being binary. You know, we, we think of this country, in this country, we talk about race and we think black and white and it's larger than that. Um, I think also, and, and Kevin Tashima, Karen's brother talked about um, how people in South Central looked at what happened, how people in Westwood looked at what happened. I think it was very important to include, just for all of those reasons, the emotionality, what it meant as an obelisk on this timeline, but then what it meant in terms of how other people may appropriate that event in terms of how they see it, um, what box it needs to fit in for their purposes, um, and then how that adds up over time. Well, you know, it was so interesting because the people in South Central would say this thing is, these kind of shootings have been happening all the time. Yes. Now, Karen's death has caused this big brouhaha, you know, but you're not going back and you're not looking at our communities where it's happening. Yeah. And that was, that was just, again, this fascinating, fascinating layering and complications, which I do see when I watch your American Crime anthology series. <laughs> that kind of We try complexity. to get to that. We try to get those story tones. <laughs> you know. And it absolutely is true that, um, they were not getting those kinds of reactions. They had shootings, as, as people would say in here, all the time in South Central, and people didn't react the same way. Um, that's something that needs to be acknowledged, but it's still, you know, every loss of life, you know, it's, it's for whom the bell tolls. It's still a heavy loss, and it was unfortunate that that loss in particular, among many, becomes politicized as opposed to just mourned the way losses need to be mourned. So explain to me, when the watch commander says, after the... The uprising was over. He turned in his badge and his uniform, right? And he sued. He sued the uh, Los Angeles police force. Did he win? Because did He did not win. So Mike Moulin tried to sue because, in his opinion, Daryl Gates put so much of the blame on what went wrong because he pulled his officers out. Um, clearly, that, whether, whether that is a good move or not, there were, there, were, there were so many problems in so many ways. When you have the uh, commander of the 101, coming in and saying, you know, after three or four days, there's still no command, there's still no structure. Um, there were clearly larger systemic problems. But yes, he felt as though he had been personally maligned in public and had a, uh, had a case. Um, he did not win that case. Um, as he said, he sent someone else to clean out his locker. But, the, you know, the, there was, I think it was the, see, it was either Warren, Commissioner, the Christopher Commission, there were a lot of commissions going on in LA through Rampart. Uh, there, there were a lot of commissions. I don't know that much ever came out of it, but there was a commission that followed up. There were all these recommendations. The LA PD is a, is a different PD. I mean, that, that's a fact, but it took a lot of changes. As I mentioned, Rampart, we don't get into that here, but a lot of that was just trial and error and difficulty. So um, departments can change, people can be aware, they can be cognizant, but we, again, we see it all over where, where these changes don't come easily. 
So the young man who was shooting uh, the material on, over in Normandy and Florence in the Reginald Denny incident, he said he was shooting, his brother was shooting, and someone else was shooting too. Yeah, I think right? his cousin, cousin was shooting. So how did you get, get to him and get access to all that footage? I think that, in all honesty, I think years ago, ABC had licensed the footage. So again, oh. in working with ABC, the resources were so rich and so deep. But even at that, you know, to get Tim to sit down and talk, as you said, there are people who ask that question, well, why are you filming? Why are you not yeah. going out and doing something? And I do think that is a question that um, documentarians or news people face all the time, is when do you need to put down the camera and get involved? Um, but he was he was a videographer. That's what he did. Yeah. So I, I think that for him, it was just an extension of stories that he was telling in that neighborhood where oftentimes people didn't go and didn't try to find these stories. Right. And he, at that point, became uh, a neighborhood reporter and did report over and over and over again. And then the gentleman who, who saved the other man, who I guess the Asian man who got beaten up in his car, yeah. And he says he goes over to the car and he says some choice words yeah, to those guys. <laughs> and then he pulled them out, yeah. got, got into the car, drove them to the, to the hospital, I guess, right? Yeah, Don Jones <laughs> was an interesting guy because he was, he, he was a first responder. Yeah. Um, and he understood things from a first responder's point of view when he talks about the police officers and says, I get it. Maybe you had to strike them a few times. Maybe you had to get pain compliance. But at some point, that turns into a beating. Um, but at the same time, he's an individual who is willing to go out on that street corner and engage with people and say to people that he knows, um, not now, not here, not now. We have to do something. The choices that people make, that to me is the most fascinating thing. What would I would have done? I don't know where I would have landed on the spectrum. Honestly, and it's very fortunate that um, that you weren't there. I, that I haven't, I, I have <laughs> not been situation. tested in that way. But we, again, we see it all the time. We yeah. see it all the time. You know, our producers, one of them who's here tonight, she was texting me the night before Charlottesville, saying we're down here, and uh, you know, it's going to pop off tomorrow. So these folks go out and they're willing to tell these stories. And again, I'm, and I'm speaking for myself. I have the advantage of asking what would I have done. There are other folks who go out there on, you know, three sides. There's the right side, there's the wrong side, and the people are trying to document that side. And thank God for two of those sides, you know. You're right. You never know what you would do. I mean, you like to think, as I was watching the film, I would like to think I would do what the first responder did, but I don't yeah. think I would have, you know. I don't think I would have, and I, I, I was there in L.A., and I was far enough away that, you know, we were watching these things, but we never had to make one choice or the other. We're going to go out there because... We, we, our voices aren't being heard, and this is the only way people will listen, or saying, this is too much. You know, right now, this is too much, and I, I gotta step in. It's so complicated, so it's like for another great example to me is when the Rodney King beating is happening, the one police officer you had interviewed who said he, his car, he drove up to the incident, and he saw what was happening, and he says something like, you know, if we had still had the chokehold, we wouldn't have had you wouldn't have had to use those metal batons. And I said, well, the chokehold could have killed the guy. <laughs> well, it's it's interesting to me because, and and I'll just say this is opinion. That was Robert Simpack, who was at the Mincy arrest where James Mincy died, and he was also at uh, the Rodney King beating. And one of the things, and again, this is just for me. You know, people talk about, well, if we had the chokehold, we could have gone in there and we could have subdued him. Um, but and one of the officers saying, officers saying, well, we don't do the swarm, though. We won't go in. To choke this guy, you still got to get physically close to him. So it never made any sense to me, the idea that 
We could go in there and we could choke them out, but we couldn't swarm. You know, and the other thing, even in that footage, you know, there were about 25 officers there. There were four that were indicted for their, three for their beating and one who was in charge. Um, there were 25 officers. I've been to that intersection. Once that intersection is cordoned off, you know, you could sit there all day and just, you know, okay, when you're tired, we're tired, you know? Um, there were a lot of things that didn't make sense to me, but our desire was to not go in and say, okay, well, here's my opinion, and this is where we're going to get to. We're going to present these things. We're going to let people speak and let people form their own opinion. And that was the amazing thing was, and I think in that, you know, Robert Simpak, when he's talking, he never feels defensive about what he's saying. This is what I believe. I see, I can name off the top of my head, 25 arrests that were worse. That, to me, is frightening. When somebody feels comfortable, I'm happy that we created a space where people felt like they could tell their story, but where somebody very legitimately, in their mind, feels comfortable saying, I could name 25 arrests that were worse. It's the same way with the, one of the gentlemen who, was, who had beaten Reginald Denning. He yeah. seemed to feel very comfortable talking about you know, how he felt about how black people were treated in the community and what, why this incident happened. You know, he didn't feel, I didn't see any sense of guilt in him at all. No, and I think that's important to understand where is that comfort coming from? Where does it, where does it get to the point where the people who are on the street feel comfortable? I, I think many of these people didn't wake up saying, oh, I'm gonna feel comfortable with this level of engagement. It's where is it quite literally taught? And, and, and as you say, with the chokehold, you know, people are taught this is a method and it, it's, there's not gonna be um, anything that goes wrong with it, but the other officer, Tom Elfman, who talks about, well, we went through it and it was pretty awful, so why aren't we contextualizing how it feels with us to how it feels to someone who's on the street? It's that disconnect in these conversations that we really want to try to get at. And that we don't understand who we, each other, you know, there's a disconnect because we don't know each other. We don't really relate to each other. You can see it when you're talking to, like the incident in the store with the Asian lady who shoots the young black girl. It was like a complete disconnect, yeah. you know. It's such a, for those of you, I mean, who've spent time in LA, you know, I mean, it is a city that is, we get in our cars, we drive around, we interact with each other based on how folks drive. We arrive to our, our enclaves. I mean, look, I've been living out there for 20 years. It's a wonderful city. Um, the best things that have happened to me personally and professionally have happened to me in that city. But it is a different environment. And when you see environments where people interact with each other every day, and there's still moments where there's this friction and this disconnect. Imagine a city where we don't connect with each other on a regular basis, and then things fall apart. Um, that really is one of the things that we want to get to. There was an event, there was a series of events, but it played out in these communities. And how do these folks react? How do we interact? And what are we truly trying to arrive to? to? So here we are now in 2017. You've been in the city quite a long time. What's the city of LA like now with all this diversity and, you know, in the different neighborhoods? What's the city of LA like now from your perspective? On the surface, um, things are better than they were 25 years ago. And unfortunately, a lot of communities that were bypassed in terms of economic aid and development, um, that is coming in now. The, neg the negative part of that is also obviously displacement. Um, and uh, just recently, when we were putting this together, I just heard anecdotally a, a news report that you know, 75% of Angelinos are happy with their circumstances. Now that sounds good, but 25% of 8 million people who are not happy with their circumstances is a huge chunk of individuals. So again, 
because my circumstances are good, because my life is good, I, I can't ever assume that that is the same for everyone else. And I think that people are aware, particularly 25 years later as we talk about what happened, of what happened back then. Aware enough, but that doesn't mean when it happens the next time it's gonna be the same folks with the same demographic and the same circumstances. So that's what I want to be cautionary about um, and what's gonna happen and why. And again, as we were taking this film out and around, um, you saw what was happening in Charlottesville. And the interesting thing to me, and again, I don't wanna get off topic too much or politicized, but um, who was showing up, who was agitated, who was trying to start trouble and when it started and when they ended up really hurting and killing people. I watched the news all weekend and I only heard the word riot once, you know. Um, why is that not a riot? Right. You know, why, why does that not, you know, when you have George Will in this film talking about a police riot, George Will of all people, you know, that lands to me. Um, and I do think words matter. Right, they do. I was just saying that John, I came from Milwaukee, I guess near your hometown, right? And, uh, there was a Milwaukee Film Festival, and this past weekend they showed at the Oriental Theater Love Jones. Yeah. And I never right. saw so many black people in that theater. That's one of the <laughs> because things. Because they say Milwaukee is one of the most segregated Milwaukee cities. Milwaukee really is. It, 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 this is not hyperbole. It is one of the most segregated cities in America, and I grew up there. And it is a wonderful place. And part of the reason, unfortunately, as I got older, I realized one of the reasons that it's quote unquote wonderful, and it, and it is in many ways, but that because it's segregated and you don't have to deal with um, certain demographics or certain ways and there's, there's things that ways, ways that things always worked and because they've worked that way for so long, I don't wanna say worked, I wanna say worked in terms of a system in place that other folks didn't necessarily need to deal with certain problems. And unfortunately people of color, um, they lead in almost every negative statistic and people of color who are doing very well, there was a report, I think it was in the New York Times, about people of color in Milwaukee who um, of good means, um, who are accomplishing things, but can't move to certain neighborhoods still. Still, still 2017. So Lorenz Tate, who's a good friend of the family and very good friends with my wife, um, was out uh, presenting Love Jones, which is great because it's a phenomenal film to begin with, but going to the Milwaukee Film Festival. Again, you know, a lot of times talk about film festivals and things like that. You know, we're, we're a community that values our expression and trying, trying to reflect, trying to tell stories, but the reality is um, we don't necessarily do a great job of it all the time. And we have these festivals about saying to people, this is a festival for everybody. You know, film is for everybody. Storytelling is for everybody. So in Milwaukee, we're really trying to do that. And I'm personally trying to create a space in Milwaukee where it's about fostering film, socializing with purpose, and particularly bringing anybody, but certainly people of color, and saying, look, storytelling is for you. Whether you're writing, uh, writing has been great for me, but I hope people pick up cameras and get into editing. That's science and technology. That's the great thing about filmmaking, is all these artists and crafts, um, they're real crafts. I wanna say writing or directing is not a real craft, but working with a camera, working with um, sound mixing equipment, working with coloring, um, recording, wardrobe, you know, these are crafts, production design. So that's something we want to bring out to Milwaukee and in the future, I may turn to some of you and invite you to come and share your experiences in that city. I hope you'll consider it. I really, really do. It's well, 
so important that we share the things that we we're able to do and accomplish. My last question is is a question that many times people ask me about my films. Is John, what do you hope this film accomplishes? More than anything, I really hope it brings people who have the capacity um, to express empathy, to absorb other people's story, and really remind us that we've got to go out and change the narrative um, uh, or, or secure the narrative. You know, you were talking again downstairs, it's two steps forward, one step forward, two steps back. Right. It feels that way. I don't want to suppose anybody else's politics, but you know, I, I don't care where you land on the spectrum right now. It's not about conversation. It's not about problem solving. Um, and we see it too much and too often. So my hope and belief is that the people who have the capacity to really affect conversations will do that and remind ourselves, you know, again, for me, where I was 25 years ago and what I thought or what I would have done in that moment is a lot different than what I would do now. And to see these stories in context, um, to see bits of footage that I saw back then and made me feel a certain way, um, once I get that context, I feel a different way. And allowing ourselves to have the capacity to find that context before we make certain judgments, before I make certain judgments. Let me make it about me first and foremost. Um, but that's what I would like to accomplish with this film. And more than anything else, allow people who don't normally have the opportunity to share their stories from their perspective to do so with audiences. Thank you, John. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you all. I appreciate it very much. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more about films screened through the DGA's documentary series, check out our recent episodes featuring director Kenneth Carlson's Heart of Nuba and director Keith Maitland's Tower. You can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date on the great discussions we have coming up. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please like, share, and leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.